Hey gang, it's Graham. What's cracking? All right, it is 1027 on a Saturday night. I just got back from seeing Ghostbusters Afterlife. This one is going to be like a plank of wood hewn from a log with a dull axe. It is going to be rough, raw, and uncut. Ha <laughs> ha! I am on my game. All right, so, uh, man, I was... I was hesitant about this one just because it's a 30-year sequel, 30-plus year sequel to the original. Uh, it's actually coming up on a 40-year sequel. I can only say that because the original came out the year that I was born, and I'm 37. Ugh. But I digress. Uh, a lot of these 30-year sequels that have come out in the last decade and a half have been worse than garbage, all right? Um, you know, Terminator had an awesome movie in 84, an excellent sequel in 91, a cash grab in 2003, a bad cash grab in 2009, a flagrant bad cash grab slash reboot in 2015, and then an utter car crash of a she-boot. What was that, like last year or maybe the year before? A she-boot is when they try to take the original and just redo it with chicks which Ghostbusters also had to suffer through. Uh, another example would be uh, Ocean's 8, which makes sense because women only get like 77% of what the men get. Am I right, ladies? <laughs> anyway, I'm still digressing. We're, we're getting back on track here. I was hesitant to get excited for this one. The first trailer came out. It looked like it was going to be cool. It had Paul Rudd in it. My boy's funny. I like it. Um, and so I was like, okay, you know, the, the, the premise seems interesting. But I'm hesitant because all of these 30-year sequels and he-boots, reboots, and she-boots almost unfailingly have subversion and bad writing and bad characterization, and they're just full of crap. They just suck. Uh, <laughs> as Christopher Rocchio said, um, without religion, we wouldn't have the first three Indiana Jones movies, but we would still have the fourth one, so checkmate atheists, right? Like... <sighs> All of these successful franchises of yesteryear, these cinematic classics, uh, you've got modern-day writers that are trying to, to take them and, oh, we got to correct this one. Oh, we've got to go back and, and make this one right for modern audiences. We've got to make this one more reflective of a current audience. We've got to make it more diverse. You know, they, they hit it with these buzzwords. They can nice it up however they want. At the end of the day, they're just making it suck. And this one was I, I'm, I'm going to throw it out there. Maybe in a few weeks I'll amend my assessment. But walking out of that movie, I thought this was pretty much perfection uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, geez, where do I even start? So two weeks ago when I flew to Pennsylvania, I had downloaded the first one to my phone and, and watched it just as a refresher. Um, I've never actually seen the second one all the way through, but I, I watched the first one just to get a reminder of, you know, all the little in-jokes and little world-building elements and the things that made it work. And uh, I'm really glad it did because there was a lot that I picked up on uh, in Afterlife that I might not have seen or that I might not have caught if I hadn't, you know, ju just put it in my mind again recently. Um, like the opening scene in the first movie where uh, Venkman is doing a, a psychic test with a male and female uh, student pair. And, you know, he's holding up a card the students can't see what's on the card 
And uh, if the girl guesses like anything at all, he just tells her that it's right without showing her the card. Whatever the guy guesses, even if it's right, Venkman shocks him. You know, they had a little scene like that um, later on in the movie. Uh, before I say anything else, I'm going to give you guys a spoiler warning because um, I do want to talk about some of the things that would be spoilers. If you haven't seen it, go see it and then come listen to this episode. Uh, <laughs> that, that bit with the psychic card, it was like a mid credit scene. If there was a post credit scene, I didn't stay to see it. But there was a mid-credit scene, and I thought it was kind of funny because, uh, you know, they, they get through the cast role, you know, who was the main cast in this movie, and then special appearances by Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Ernie Hudson, and then it said Sigourney Weaver, and I was like, wait a second, she wasn't in the movie. And then it cuts to the mid-credit scene, and it shows, uh, you know, her and Bankman at home, and uh, <laughs> yeah, she she's doing the test to him in reverse. And it's just, it's funny. Um, another thing that I was wary of is... Again, with a lot of these uh, reboots, sheboots, and late sequels, there's a a specific focus on humiliating male protagonists, putting them in their place. You saw this a lot with the Loki show that came out back in May. It was it was just about everybody dumping on Loki, and and not just in a oh let's put this guy on his back foot, let's hobble him a little bit, and he's he's got the deck stacked against him. It was specifically like. Like women kicking him in the balls. I think there was there was literally a scene where Seif like he was trapped in a time loop and she was repeatedly kneeing him in the balls, and he was getting humiliated. And then he got the hots for the female variant of himself. It was just it, it was flagrant. There's no hiding it. But in this one, that didn't happen. It was it was a, a flirty exchange between um, Peter Venkman and Dana. Uh, you know, presumably Dana Dana Venkman now. Um, you know, she's got the wedding ring on her finger and stuff. And they, he, he makes a comment about like, oh, you know, we're in love. That gives me psychic insights. And, you know, she shocks him. You know, it was, it was a, a married couple that had been together for several decades. This is, you know, I've only been married to my wife for 11 years. And I tease the heck out of her because it makes her smile. And I like it. You know, it was, it was a, a healthy reflection of uh, a marriage that has plenty of joy in it. I, I like that. It was great. Sorry if you're getting a lot of feedback from me, you know, moving my arms around in my jacket or whatever. I don't have my external mic plugged in, so my phone might be picking up a lot of background noise. Um, geez, where, where do I even break it down? Like, the opening scene where, you know, there's something going on in a dark middle-of-nowhere town in the Midwest. It's Oklahoma. I, I think some people consider that the Midwest. It's just above Texas. I'm not sure. But there's a, a man who's escaping a mine site in the dark and he's in a pickup truck and you don't exactly see him at first. This is one of those things where like external knowledge of the movie might slightly dampen the experience, but it's, it's Egon Spangler. He's one of the four original Ghostbusters. And, uh, you know, you got, you got Winston, Egon, Ray, and Peter. And, uh, Egon is, you know, his, his face is always in the shadows, but occasionally you see like silhouettes of him and, uh, you know, Egon always had a very distinctive hairstyle and his glasses and stuff. You're like, oh crap, I don't even know who the actor is that's doing this. But, you know, with, with the, the lighting and stuff that they employed, they do a really good job of making him look like Harold Ramis, the actor who played him. Um, the last time I remember seeing Harold Ramis in anything was, uh, geez, Orange County, which came out 20 years ago. He had, it wasn't a cameo, it was more of a bit part, but he looked thick. He, this is a guy who had been doing well in Hollywood and, you know, wasn't living off of that, uh, those eighties baby fat roles anymore. Like this guy was, he was, he was settling into his, uh, his middle age portion of his career. But 
whoever they got to play him, they, they just made him look like an older version of the 80s Harold Ramis. I'm getting into the weeds here. Um, you know, he's running from a ghost. He, he tries to catch the ghost in a trap on his farm. It, the trap doesn't work. The ghost kills him. And uh, a week later, we cut to this family in Illinois. Um, single mom, two teenage kids. The, uh, the son is kind of a, a slacker type. The daughter is a science nerd. The mom gets uh, a notice that uh, her father died and, and left her some property, and it's out in Oklahoma. So, okay, you know, th they never say the, the surname until, you know, later in the movie when Phoebe, the daughter, has to go down into the basement, and she finds, you know, some of the old Ghostbuster suits. They say Spangler on them, and, and uh, you know, that's when you're, you're kind of given to understand, like, oh, okay, yeah, these are definitely Spangler's uh, family, his, his daughter and uh, grandkids. Um they move out to Oklahoma. They're broke, 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 worse than broke. Um, there was a cameo by, uh, my goodness, I, I can't remember the actress's name, but she was Janine in the original Ghostbusters. She was their, their very Jewish New York secretary. <laughs> and she had the hots for Spangler, which I, I got a kick out of. And he was either oblivious or, or like intentionally resistant to her charms, but she was the one who was handling his estate. And, uh, you know, she hands the paperwork off to, to Callie, to his daughter. So, you know, she had an appearance there. It's like, okay, cool. You know, and, and she was still spot on with the character and, you know, delivered the, the news perfectly. Um, you know, Phoebe's taking summer school classes because she's the smart kid. Her summer school teacher is Paul Rudd's character, uh, Gary. He's a, a seismologist who's just teaching summer school so that he can be there to, uh, to study the random earthquakes that have been going on in this town in Oklahoma. And, uh, man, like, it's it's well thought out. Like it doesn't feel contrived or anything. You don't stop and think like, Oh, that's weird. Like, is this kind of forced? It's like, no, they, they figured out what every character is doing and then kind of webbed it all together to make it work. Um, I remember seeing in one of the trailers, you know, when, uh, they're driving the Ecto one and there's this, the gunner seat and Phoebe's hanging out of the gunner seat with the, uh, the photon gun. And she's shooting at this ghost. I was like, is that just Slimer? Is it a blue Slimer? It's like, no, he's, he's, uh, He's kind of like a big bug-looking thing. He's got six limbs. He is fat like Slimer. They call him Muncher. He eats metal. And, you know, they use that little ghost to, to great effect. It's it's not just a movie that's full of member berries. There are the Easter eggs there if you're looking for them. But it's not like, oh, here's this old property. You should like it. You should throw money at it because it's this old property. And if you don't like this new version we're doing, it's probably because you're a sexist. It would be really weird if they ever made like a 30-year she-boot of this movie and say, like, tried to make it with four female actresses, but what if it just sucked, you know? Um, there there would probably be people that didn't like that, and then there would be, like, a few critics and angry feminists defending it and saying, oh, if you don't like this movie, you must be a sexist. But I'm glad a movie like that doesn't exist, that they just made Ghostbusters 1 and 2 and then this one however many decades later. But I digress. Um... You know, we, I got the impression from the trailers that this girl Phoebe was going to be the main character, and she was, but again, you know, she's not the main character at the expense of anyone else, at the expense of her older brother. Like, yeah, he's not the science-minded kid like his little sister, but he's he's a little bit of a, of a punk slacker, but he's immediately got a love interest in this small town, and you can see him doing what he can to try to get his game on. He gets a, a job where she works, and he's trying to flirt with her. Like, he's he's got his own things that he's dialed into. He's not dumb just because he's 
not sciencey like his little sister. You know, he he's got his own priorities, and he's very adept mechanically. You see that early on, and uh, you know when he finds the Ecto One in Spangler's barn, he gets it up and running. Um, I also thought it was really cool early on when you see like ghost activity going on in the house. You know, Phoebe's playing chess with a ghost. Um, this plays on over the, the course of like a, a day and a half or something. She moves a piece and then she goes into the room later and like another piece has been moved. And uh, she's got the little, you know, ghost scanner thing that the Ghostbusters use in the 80s. And she follows it around to find, uh, you know, Spangler's lab in his basement. I didn't realize at first that the ghost that she was de detecting and following around was going to be Egon. I, I thought it was going to be one of these bad ghosts that Egon was trying to chase. And like, okay bad ghost kills Egon and now it's going to hang out at the house and, and, uh, you know, kill his grandkids or something or, or try to hunt them down. And they got to solve this mystery without him. Like, no, he was integral to the story, to the development of it. And eventually, you know, without seeing him or hearing him, Phoebe starts working with her grandfather. I'm like, awesome. They're incorporating him into it. The mom, Callie, she had a lot of beef with, with Egon. And, you know, she even goes so far as to like tell her own daughter, like, no, my father was an a-hole. He was just terrible. And, and Phoebe's out to like exonerate her grandfather, like prove to her own mother, like, no, he, he wasn't a bad man. He was just so obsessed with, with, uh, finding out what was going on in this town and, and solving it. And, oh man, there's this, that great scene where they're all locked up after the, the first time they take Ecto-1 through town and they trash the town and they get arrested. And Phoebe's like, Hey, don't I get a phone call? And the sheriff's like, who you going to call? Perfection. Because she does call the Ghostbusters. Uh, the trailer led you to believe that it was um, Vankman that answered the phone. But no, it, it was Ray. It was Dan Aykroyd's character. And the bit of information that he gives her over the phone is... Um, man, like it, it's, it's critical for her to understand why Egon was in Oklahoma. And it was also critical for the information that she gave to the original Ghostbusters who showed up at the end and why. I mean... Oh my gosh, if you really want to prioritize diversity and representation and especially, you know, getting young girls interested in sci-fi and paranormal, you know, genres that have been historically and overwhelmingly geared toward and consumed by male viewers, male readers, and all that stuff, this is how you do it. It's not done at the expense of the other sex. It was, you know, everybody was involved everybody had their contributions to make everybody got to play to their strengths and phoebe was just the protagonist and she wasn't just awesome because she was a girl she had her own limitations you know she wasn't massively strong because she was a scientist she she played to her scientific strengths and when it came time to do anything physical oh man that scene at the end where she's going head to head with gozer and and spangler's ghosts like jumped in to help her i'm like ah oh, chills that was awesome like, even though the big bad was the same big bad that the original Ghostbusters were fighting in 1984, like, fine. Don't care. Perfect. Because what's the other option? Okay, we've got to introduce a whole brand new ghost, too, in addition to introducing these these uh, brand new protagonists that are inheriting a problem from an old family member. I'm totally fine with them fighting the same uh, Gozerian again and coming to a, a permanent solution to the problem. Oh, man, like, the theater clapped when the original Ghostbusters showed up. Um, I was really bummed when I heard that Harold Ramis died several years ago because this was a movie that was always on the bubble. It was always, you know, right around the corner from being made. Um, I guess Bill Murray and Harold Ramis had beef for a couple of decades, and that's one of the things that made it impossible to produce this thing. 
And then when Harold died, I was like, oh, great, this is going to suck. Well, then they go in and announce this one, and I see a trailer for it, and I, I had this kind of pipe dream moment where I was like, you know, it would be real great fan service. It would be especially a, a beautiful homage to Harold if, you know, the original three show up and they see his ghost somehow. And, oh, man, when that happened, when you got that moment, when they all got to say their farewells to Spangler, it was... It was amazing, and you know the the end of it where where they just de dedicated the movie to Harold Ramis, who was one of the original writers. It was him and Aykroyd who wrote the first movie. Ah, oh, this this did everything that you could ask it to do to be respectful to everything that came before it, minus the theoretical Ghostbusters movie from 2016 with all the chicks that didn't happen and should just be ignored. Oh, perfection. I I still don't want every single successful franchise of yesteryear to be harvested for nostalgia bait and cash and to subvert the past. I, I don't I don't want stuff to be harvested even if it is good. But when it is made, it should be this good. And it was very good. Um I went in with slightly lower expectations because uh Critical Drinker did a video. I didn't watch it yet because, you know, his title was like, oh, it, it was fine. Um, I watched Nerd Roddick's video because I knew he wasn't going to do any spoilers. And uh, he was like, you know, it, it was pretty good. It wasn't great. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've, a couple of movies that he's praised or been low on, and, you know, I've had differing tastes in. So I just figured I'd, I'd go in and see it for myself. And if I hadn't listened to either of them, I probably would have had this same reaction. This was amazing. It was It was just perfectly done. And, you know, I, I'm excited to go see it again at some point. I am worried that if it is tremendously successful, Sony going to Sony, and they're going to try to horsewhip 18 more sequels out of it. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny that the Stranger Things kid who dressed up as Spangler in season two, uh, when it was 1984 in that show, he ended up like a couple years later playing Spangler's grandson. Good stuff. But... I know Hollywood won't, but the right thing to do now is to leave it alone and end on this note. Um, not everything has to be a cinematic universe, and in fact, most things should not be. I would even go so far as to say that not everything even needs a sequel. And I say that understanding that this was one. Um, there, are, there are very few trilogies that get better with every installment. There are very few originals that have even better sequels or sequels that were just as good. Um, I think we were lucky to get this one and to have it be as good as it was and to have it be great in all the right ways. You know, the, this was directed by the son of the original director. I mean, just, just everything fell into place for this one. So, uh, if you haven't seen it, but you somehow listened through these 19 minutes and let the whole thing be spoiled for you, um, that's on you, but if you have seen it and, uh, you had the same experience, let me know. Drop me an email, dreadpennies at gmail.com. You guys know the drill. Uh, until then, I am going to go home, go to bed, and, uh, maybe I'll podcast something for you next week. I just finished edits on Sheriff Porter today. That's the one I've been calling Signature Wounds. Uh, I'm going to get some feedback from a beta reader and, uh, going to work on the cover for the next week or so. And then hopefully start recording that one and get it out to you in uh, in December. But 
Uh, you guys know the drill. Just stay tuned for that one uh, on the Dread Pennies Adventure Hour podcast. That's it for now. I'm Radcracker. Stay rad. Drive safe. See you out there.